In this episode, we're chatting to Narelle Dawson, Director of Bribey Island Community Kindy, and someone who's been a part of its fabric for over 29 years. And just this year made history as the only early year setting in Australia to have been rated excellent for four consecutive years in a row in the assessment and rating process. Now, anyone that has been through the process here in Australia will know that it is a rigorous and very demanding process. It takes an incredible amount of team effort, intention, and incredible leadership to be rated excellent even once, yet alone four times in a row. So today we'll be picking Narelle's brain about what makes Bribey Island Community Kindy stand out and ultimately what success looks like for her and the children in her care. We'd like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which we record today, the Kabi Kabi and Gubby Gubby people. We recognise their continued connection to the land and waters of this beautiful place. We recognise Aboriginal people as the original custodians of this land and acknowledge that they have never ceded sovereignty. We respect all Gubby Gubby elders, ancestors and emerging elders and all First Nations people listening today. Welcome to Raising Wildlings, a podcast about parenting, alternative education stepping into the wilderness, however that looks, with your family. Each week, we'll be interviewing experts that truly inspire us to answer your parenting and education questions. We'll also be sharing stories from some incredible families that took the leap and are taking the road less travelled. We're your hosts, Vicky and Nikki from Wildlings Forest School. Pop in your headphones, settle in and join us on this next adventure. Hello and welcome to the Raising Wildlings podcast. I'm your host, Nikki Farrell. Good morning and welcome to the show, Narelle. How have you been? And more to the point, what have you been up to this morning? Well, before I jump on what we've been up to this morning, I, um, at this moment, would like to acknowledge and pay respect to the Jundaburi people of the Kapikabi Nation, um, who are the traditional custodians of the land and where I am placed today. Um, I honour them as the first people who lovingly cared for this land where we um, are blessed to work and play and humbly walk with them to share and continue on with the tremendous responsibility of looking after this land. Um, I wish to pay respects to all elders past, present, and these future old people coming through. Mm, Beautiful. Thank you for that. It's a beautiful way to ground before we begin. So this morning, um, each time um, during the the school holidays, because we are kindy, um, we do family bush and beach walks. And we go to different cultural sites in this area. And today's walk um, happened to be at a space called Dolphin Calling Point. And um, so what we do is we put this out to our families, um, come along, bring your children and, um, you know, the younger siblings, the older siblings. So it becomes a really nice family walk. Mm. And... Um, we also, uh, as many of our team who possibly can come along do, and we also invite community, just people in the community who would like oh, to, to come great. along. And today we we had the um, the absolute pleasure of um, Bruce Phillips from Maritaka now living in our community and um, um, I've, over, over time since he's moved here, been able to build a relationship with him. And um, he joined us um, as part of the community on this walk and brought along with him his wealth of knowledge mm. um, around um, local plants and um, their their use mainly from an edible perspective. But he does have some um, knowledge also of, of a lot of um, medicinal knowledge of, of plants as well. 
so it it was fabulous it was really lovely and um I managed to learn more about different plants that were in there and um, I've managed to unlearn um, mm. at, for this moment um, some of the things that, um, you know, um, I thought I knew before and I need to do more research and look into, um, you know, how traditional owners feel about um, ochre, for instance, mm. and whether they... Um, whether the traditional owners, which are the Jundaburi people, um, how they feel about um, ochre being taken off country and used mm. in our programs. So that that was the big, the big, the big thing I took away from today. Yeah, and I, I I really want to touch on this because a the word unlearning I think is so important in what we do, and particularly in the programs and the people that we meet in the communities that we work with but also that um, there's different perspectives and there's different layers and these things are often an ongoing, continuous learning and unlearning journey, but we can't have them without these touch points and these community conversations and these deep relationships. And I think that's what you do so fabulously at Raby Island Kindy. So I want to say, first of all, thank you for the incredible work you do there in building those relationships and for setting that bar of what it can look like because I think that is really important for people to be able to see what it can look like. Oh, thank you. Um, I just um, think that um, it's a, it, it, it is a journey and it's not something that can happen overnight. Um, but if you are um, genuine and committed um, and open, you know, open to sometimes some challenging, um, some challenging times, then um, the doors will open. But, um, you know, we've been on this journey for a very long time. I've been at the, the kindy for 29 years, um, finished up 29 years this year. So um, I've learned a lot along the way. And, you know, our our journey um, into, let's use the term embedding Aboriginal and Torres Strait Island perspectives, um, you know, it took about 10 years. Um, just chipping away and working at it and and trying to um, work out, you know, how, how we can be the best we can possibly be in this space when it comes to the um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait First Nations culture um, is to be prepared to um, for it to take a long time. Yeah. And I think this is where, where some, yeah, some struggle um, um, because they want everything to happen and relationships Ships and, and general relationships don't happen that way. Um, so it has taken a very, very long time. Yeah, well, it's the whole three cups of tea and even three cups of tea is just the beginning of the relationship, isn't it? And and I think you touched on something really important there. We need to be comfortable with being uncomfortable and putting our white fragility away and, and being pulled up on our mistakes and taking ownership for them, really honestly, deeply apologising if and when we do and seeing what we can do to repair uh, relationships, mistakes that we've made, because we are going to make them if we're going to build relationships. I'm not saying that's okay. I'm saying what we need to do is be uncomfortable when we get pulled up, because if we're doing it right, we will be uh, open to those conversations rather than um, being ghosted in those conversations, if that makes sense. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. um, talk to me about... So you've been 29 years. I mean, that that is amazing mm -hmm. in itself. What 
How would you describe for a parent coming to Bribey Island Community Kindy for the first time, how would you describe your philosophies and what you do and what you're all about? I think that um, the way that we would do, describe is exactly these things that we're talking about now. We would make it very, very clear about um, our relationship with um, and respect for First Nations people, their ways of, of doing, being and knowing. We would talk about um, how we believe it's important for non-Indigenous children also to um, learn about First Nations people and it's important for our, our First Nations children to, to absolutely feel like this is their place, that they belong here. Um, and that that is first and foremost to to families who come through our doors. Um, so we're very very clear um, about where we stand um, with that. Um, we talk about community um, and how we need to to be in community for children to feel like they're part of a community and grow up and and um, feel like you know they have been members of a community. So I talk a lot about um, um, how community um, is embedded in our philosophy and being part of community, but also that um, we are embedded in the community in different walks of life mm. um, for many different aspects. It's pretty hard not to be embedded when you've lived there and worked there for 29 years. I mean, you must be raising multiple generations now. I am. How amazing. I know. So I, I am teaching children of children and that is so so special mm. and such a privilege too so beautiful I, I live slightly off the island yeah but it, it it is um yeah special mm. it's another thing that we we also talk about is um I, I guess you know we talk about sustainability and what that looks like in this space inside our fence line and outside of the fence line um and we talk a lot about play and nature play because that's who we are. Um, we're, we're not, we do document, but we are, I believe, quite minimalistic in our documentation, but we still seem to be getting it right. Yeah, I think that's the conundrum people, I think people would love to hear what your documentation might look like and then what these because the things that you are doing are incredible and they're also, I mean, it's not something that's important to me, but they're hitting the early years learning framework, right, because you've made history, you've been rated excellent four times in a row, which is the first time any early year setting has ever been, has ever done this this many times in a row. But you do it exactly because of this, because you are so deeply ingrained in your community all of your communities, and you tick, I don't want to say tick those boxes because I know that's exactly why you've been mm. rated the way you have because you're not ticking boxes. It is your deep intention, your deep purpose. Can you tell me from a leadership point of view how you lead, A, the documentation process, but how you lead your team, your incredible team, to also, I guess, know that that at the heart is is the process and not this ticking the box product at the end. Okay, so um, you're absolutely right. We do not tick boxes mm. on many levels, on many, many levels. Um, and one thing that, that is very important to me um, as a mother, a grandmother, and now a great-grandmother is um, family time. You know, um, family time 
is so important. And so um, I have never, ever placed that demand on any of our team to do any work once they walk outside these doors. Hallelujah. It's um, not to say they don't. Yeah. It, but it's not to say that they don't because, um, you know, there's a few of them who prefer to gather their thoughts at home in mm. peace and put it um, um, in writing and turn that into a bit of a short, very, very short story. And um, these stories that they do do um, form the basis of, of a lot of the, the programming because it actually shows that we are noticing um, what children are doing. Um, we look at it and analyse it in our own way and um, we don't focus too much on where to from here unless that child wants to go where to from here. Mm, I love um, that. So we, so we do have, yeah, lots of beautiful little stories that form um, um, documentation for the year on, on the children. Um, we have very few individual stories because um, we believe that children generally don't learn in isolation. They're <laughs> usually learning with someone other um, and sometimes in a big group. So a lot of these stories will include other children. Mm. Um, we, um, as far as our planning goes, we plan together. Everyone in our team has a voice in our weekly plan and um, we all go into that at different times throughout the day when when moments allow it um, and each person puts their voice in there and that's pretty much our planning. That's, that's it. Um, there are things that we will carry forward to the next week. Um, it may go somewhere or it may go nowhere. We're comfortable in saying it went nowhere. Um, and then that's honestly that's pretty much it. I'm even looking at now, you know, this big thing about summative assessments, it's the bane of my existence. I'm never happy with what they look like. No one really cares about it. Parents don't engage with it, even though they could, um, which kind of tells me that they're just happy that their children are happy and that their children are coming home with stories. And they're obviously sharing, um, you know, conversations and new learning that's going on. And um, we do we do take photos um, from time to time and generally we will ask permission, but mostly we have the children come in and say, hey, can you get the camera and just get this because I want mum to see it. Yeah. Um, so we do send home um, photos um, at the end of each week, but the purpose for this is around um, children having those conversations with their parents at home about um, their learning. So parents know what the children are learning. Mm. Um and that's pretty much our documentation. Do you, do you know what I heard from that was that you trust children to be learning at all times. You trust that parents trust you that their children are learning mm -hmm. and that they care mostly mm -hmm. that they're happy, not that they're learning because they just know that that's coming from being safe and in a place where they are cared for and nurtured and listened to. And I think if more places could understand the depth of the relationships that need to be built to get to that level I think we would see more more success in being able to eliminate more paperwork <laughs> absolutely and you know what it, it has worked for us we have never ever been pulled up by anybody to say you're not doing it right or you're not doing enough mm. um 
so it, you know I, I get quite um, sad for um, people out there in other spaces who have this incredible um, stress placed upon them to do what not even the regulations expect us to do. Yeah, that that's what blows my mind. It, it, it's not in the regs that that level, the level of planning, the level of documentation, the amount of photos being sent home, the the daily observations on children. It, it's on individual children. It's it's not a reg. So why are we placing this pressure on our team members when it's leading to? Depression, burnout, exhaustion, uh, and and people huge amounts of people leaving our sector. Who we need, a we need, and that they are incredible at their job. If we could just let them do their job, <laughs> I agree. And I think these these conversations, the conversation that we're having now, you know, probably would be more beneficial to um, you know owners mm. of these services. Um, or you know, you know, directors who, um, you know, feel that it needs to be done that way. Mm, um, yeah, yeah. I don't, I don't know how we how how we reach people to understand. It's just a complete waste of time. It's robbing children of um, your attention. You know, to what they're doing. And in saying that, we, you know, we don't sit down and play with children. Part of our philosophy for a very long time has been stand back, observe, understand their cues, you know, understand we might get that certain look that might tell us I'm, I'm wanted or I'm needed. Um, we might, um, you know, they, they will ask for something. But I can remember years ago, you know, the pressure was on to get down and get in the sandpit and play with children. And I remember... You know, I'd go and I'd sit down and all my friends would leave me. You know, um, children will let you know when you need it. <laughs> That's it. Absolutely. And you've just just reminded me, you were saying earlier about when you're planning, you know, you're planning for, you know, a child says, oh, tomorrow I might want to do this. I 100% agree. I can't tell you how many times we've gone, great, we'll organise that, we'll get the resources. That sounds like a great idea. But then being happy to let it go when you present it to the child the next day and they go, nah, that's gone. That, that idea, the passion, the engagement for that idea is gone and not forcing it because I do feel like sometimes that idea is then pushed back upon the children be, be, for the paperwork and to tick that box that they've extended ugh, extended the learning. I'm like, you haven't extended it if they, they're not interested in it. So I think these conversations are really important that I loved hearing that you were comfortable with letting that go just like you're comfortable with letting that amount of paperwork go that's not relevant for the for the children so to me what I'm hearing is it's children children first always absolutely children first and and one of the the documents that um we focus on is around children's rights mm. um and we, we we often will will look at that and revisit that and have conversations and just make sure that we're not missing anything and that we we are making sure that um you know we adhere to all of children's rights um you know especially for every moment that they're with us which is only six hours a day five day fortnight mm. 
for one year mostly. But it's impactful that time. Like we're in those those first early years and the work that the early years settings are doing is so important and these conversations about you know, I, the framework at its heart is beautiful, you know, that sense of place and belonging. I think sometimes we miss that that actually means hard work on our behalf in forming those relationships. Can you talk to me a little bit about some of the, I don't even want to call them projects because it makes them sound so tokenistic when I know how deeply rooted they are, but things such as your Junibori Walk book and the Community Art Gallery, and I know you've got dozens more, can you talk to us about how you've gone about those and how important they are to the children? Okay, so I'll talk to you about the Jindabari Walk because that that began back in 2016 mm. um, and I um, had put my hand up for some action research and it was, um, it was um, with Sue Inglis and April Cunningham and it was um, around um, a natural childhood for children. And so each of us in that, um, that action research project that I think went over about a six-month period, we had to find our own thing um, and our own question and um, work out, you know, w- which direction we wanted to go. And we knew that we had this amazing bush space right behind us at the kindy. We've got a creek, we've got the bush space, We've got our beach at the end of the road, but we were we were stuck in in our fence line, and we weren't really going out to too many places. And so, um, that that's what led to the Jindabari walk. So, we first of all um, we 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 went to a local um, space, and we said, you know, we we wanted to do this action research, and we want to build further build on our relationships and we're just wondering if you've got anyone that would be interested in walking this this journey with us and um you know if so could you you know pass on our details and within um they did say yes and we do have someone in mind that might be interested and um you know we'll pass your details on within two hours um, I had a phone call from our beautiful Uncle Ron mm. and within another hour of that phone call, he was on our doorstep oh. and he has never left. <laughs> yeah, so Uncle um, does not have any local relatives. Oh. Um, um, he has mm. some, a sister further north, a nephew, but he doesn't have anyone local. He's lived um, all of his life with his parents. His parents have passed and so I think. Um, you know, it turned out that Uncle needed us as much as we needed him. And so Uncle um, spends every Wednesday and Friday with us. And we have cut him back to half days now because he is a volunteer and he is getting on and, and we need to make sure that he's looking after himself and we are looking after him as well. Um, but um, with this Jundabari Walk project, apart from uh, meeting Uncle Ron, um, Uncle joined us um, and we contacted traditional owners and said to them, this is our idea. We'd love to research this space and uh, make it a, a little bit of a botanical walk, um, not just for us but for the whole community. And um, Anilisha um, Krauss 
um, went for the walk with me and she wholeheartedly endorsed the project. And so the next step was to get onto council and say, traditional owners um, have given their blessing. This is what we want to do. Um, where do we need to go? And so council um, contacted more traditional owners all over um, to get um, our local um, TO's endorsement ratified with all of them. And um, council came back and said, yes, you, you can have the go-ahead, but any signage that you put up must be able to be removed. And so we planned that within our planning and um, we then um, spoke with a local um, botanist who came in and looked at the 27 plants and trees that um, we had identified with Uncle Ron and had a look at all of them and we made sure that, that the information that we had was correct. Um, we spoke with traditional owners um, and Kabi Kabi people to get um, the traditional use, the medicinal use or um, other use, um, food source or shelters, whatever that may have been, to make sure that we were incorporating that information into all of the signage. We, um, and it, it basically was born from there. We had, um, we did our first big sign that um, had the 27 plants and trees on it with a little mud map of um, where you go throughout the walk. We had individual signs placed on each 27 plant or tree. A big job. And with information on those signs, yep. And then um, that that was basically the first stage. And then the next stage was we felt that, you know, we had um, incorporated some Jundabari language on that first sign and honouring the Jundabari um, TOs. But with we, we all always speak of, you know, this is um, Chundabari space, but um, it is also part of the Kabi Kabi Nation. And so that was another stage. We did another big sign and we um, um, spoke with Auntie Melinda Serico, um, an artist, Kabi Kabi artist, and she designed the sign and we incorporated some Kabi Kabi language within that sign as well. So we've got two beautiful big signs. Um, the next stage was um, one of our parents who um, now lives up the coast and is a um, tattoo artist. He designed a beautiful big mural out there that um, represents um, animals that um, would be seen in that bush space. And another one of our dads, you know, came along and said, you know, I'm a bit of an artist. I like to do artwork. Um you know, how about I compliment that um, with the whole of our back um, colour bond fence having beautiful artwork on it to blend in with the animals and everything. It's just beautiful. Um, so that, that was another stage and now we are at stage of um, got one more stage and I hope we're getting to the end, but that is to um, lobby council to ensure that that complete walk is um, all people accessible. Mm. So it mostly is, but along the creek bed can be a little bit um, uneven, a bit rocky, and we have a lot of elderly people who actually come and do this walk as well. And we would just like along the creek bed to be a little bit safer so that 
anyone who wants to come, whether you're in wheelchair or with a walker um, or completely able-bodied, then um, it's, it's accessible to everybody. So that's the stage we're at now. How incredible. And we did, um, yeah, and, and then we thought, you know, we were so proud and it, and people were just saying how much they, they loved the space and how much they were learning from it that we thought, you know, we could put this into a book. And um, so we did. We worked with um, our, our um, First Nations children. Um, then we worked with Palmerstone Indigenous Education Employment Council, um, worked with them every Thursday afternoon, um, and they actually um, added their interpretation of, of the actual plant. So they had an image of the plant that was out there and then they drew their interpretation of that plant. And then we spoke with all of the um, the elders over at Palmerstone Indigenous Education Council and spent time with them getting their voice about how that plant or tree spoke to them throughout their life and especially, you know, growing up with, with um, their family. And so that became the book and um, it's, um, it's had incredible interest. And then finally um, with that project, you know, our intention was never, ever to make money from this. And so what we actually did was handed over the rights for um, PeaceMob to um, to profit from the sale of the book. So we do have a stash for us um, to gift to different um, um, people and we have gifted a lot, every school, every learning centre locally. Um, Queensland State Library has it archived now. Um, yeah, we've gifted to a lot of people. Um, and everybody that was involved in the book, every child, um, every elder. Um, so we do gift, but um, mostly um, locally and even even further afar, um, Palmerstone Indigenous Education Employment Council, they are profiting from, from the sales of the book now. That's incredible, Narelle. What, what an amazing gift to give and to work with, work with community to give back to the community and to hear community stories I, I think that's what people are missing when they're saying we go out to earlier settings and you know we do bush kindy pds and whatnot and one of the questions we get constantly is how do we build community and how do we reach out to tos and how do we get them here and and they often just want to get them in nadoc week or you know one of the special days and there seems to be this no ongoing conversation. There seems to be a take and not a give. And I think people need to remember that we need to give more than we take and we need to build genuine relationships, not just capitalist society. And don't get me wrong, I people need to be remunerated and need to be repatriated and paid. What I mean is it's not just transactional. I, I, I really wish we could see more people genuinely building those relationships like you said over time it's not a year it's a 10-year project that people need to invest um their their love and care into for it to happen so huge kudos for the work that you've done and the relationships that you've built and another thing that I know that you do is oh sorry you go you just hit something on the head there um we our thinking is so connected because um Back in, in the beginning of my journey, um, I was um, part of, of another um, project that was 
um, it was called um, um, Talk Blow You Me, and and it was up at Noosa, and I attended that um, on a regular basis um, over a six month period, and because um, doors were closing back in that time, and I thought, you know, we, if we're doing something wrong, something's not right, and the light bulb moment during towards the end of of that professional development that I did was I realised that um, I wasn't looking at this in the right way. And the catalyst was um, I'm looking at what I can get for our children and our service and not what I could give back. And that was the turning point for me. And we, from that moment, we constantly give back, Mm. constantly. And um, we are now trusted widely um, in First Nations communities because um, we have um, we've walked the walk and we've talked the talk and yeah. we've been genuine in that and um, that has made a difference. For so long, white fellas have just taken and taken and harmed and abused and whatnot, and it takes a long time to build trust and I think people need to really think about that when they go into these relationships and realize how much how how long trust takes to build when you've been harmed and and faced trauma generationally like has happened here in Australia so yeah again I think these conversations are really important so so thank you again for for modeling what that needs to look like for it to happen genuinely and authentically I'd love to talk to you about the work that you do with your local aged care setting. Can you talk to us about that? Sure. So um, interestingly enough, um, our relationship with um, the aged care began in about 2016 as well. <laughs> and um, it, it um, I guess the, the thinking around um, community and, and how um, our children can more be part of community came from our very very first um excellent rating um assessment so we we applied for the rating and um we had a site visit from um a sequa and um that was in 2014 beginning of two or towards the end of 2013 but we were awarded in february um 2014 and um one of the areas that we applied for was community and we thought we were doing it pretty well but the comment that came back was that we could be doing more and so that um, set us on a trajectory to look well what else could we be doing um, that is authentic um, and ongoing and so even though we were having um, some elderly folk come in and we'd have morning tea for them um, we approached um, local aged care facility and um, had discussions with them about um, what this could look like, what would they like it to look like um, and what we would like it to look like for, um, you know, the children and the elderly. And so it really just began from there. And we agreed that um, we would visit on a, a weekly basis and we were doing that and then good old COVID hit and <laughs> we thought, you know, what can we do? We can't stop this just because of, of COVID. What can we do to ensure this continues? So we did. We went back and had discussions with them and at first um, what it actually looked like was um, 
the oldies were on the inside of these great big glass doors, which was the entrance up there, and we were on the outside. And um, the children would um, we'd, we'd give um, chalk pens to the oldies and they'd be drawing on the inside and the children would be drawing on the outside. Um, they would occasionally open up the doors for us and we would have um, some of the oldies singing for us and then we would <laughs> reciprocate and sing back for them. Um, and then there came a point in time when the um, facility decided we were a bit of a nuisance and um, people were trying to come in and out and we were just in the way, and, and um, which was a bit sad. So mm-hmm. we thought, well, what else can we do? So we were doing FaceTimes. Um, with them um, on a regular basis. We were doing drawings and writing little letters and delivering them up there. Um, I was blessed. My daughter-in-law um, worked for Gladiolo Farm and um, they had um, surplus supplies um, a couple of times a year. So um, she would gather or they would donate the, the Gladioli and um, we you know, went searching for some beautiful blue wine bottles and got enough for every resident up there and we were delivering flowers to them, mm. um, just doing whatever we could think of to continue that connection because um, it, we've learnt that it's just so, so important for the children and for a lot of these elderly people as well. Um, so it's still going today. COVID has disappeared and well, kind of, and, um, you know, we're, we are back to visiting. Um, I'm not allowed to take as many children as I used to. So we take um, up to about seven, eight maybe children, but that's okay because it's not for everybody. And mm. the, at the time when we go, which is Fridays around about 10 o'clock, a lot of our children are, are already immersed in their play. Mm. And so I have to go around and say, okay, you know, who, who'd like to come and visit the oldies? And um, we normally can gather, you know, some children together and we'll head on up there. Um, but it's just, um, it's so rewarding to see the joy, the joy that it brings to these these um, elderly citizens who are the, have been and still are the backbone of our society. And, you know, it's just we do build sometimes stronger relationships with some than others. Um, It's just the nature of of personalities, I guess. And, um, you know, we've just very, very recently um, had a beautiful lady, Joyce, who lived, absolutely lived for Fridays for the children to come. And if we were late, she was wanting to know where we were. And, you know, even recently I received, um, we built a relationship with her daughter and son-in-law and um, I received an email um, the night before saying, you know, Joyce isn't doing too well. It's probably not good for the children to come. And then, of course, um, next day Joyce rallied and um, <laughs> I had her son-in-law on the phone saying, where are you? She's wanting to know where the children are. You need, Can you get up here quick? So we did. Oh, oh. Um, sadly, um, we lost Joyce very recently and, um, mm. you know, so you know, we had to have those conversations and we've had to have those conversations with the children before. But this is part of why we do what we're doing as well. They're learning about life. Um, we're trying to normalise um, um, ageing as well. And um, it's, it is just one of the most beautiful things that we do and we will continue to do this no matter what. Oh, gosh, it's so important 
for so many of those children that don't have grandparents around and vice versa and that intergenerational learning and respect and for the for our oldies to be seen and remembered and and like you said that circle of life is it's real and grief is real and we are learning to process it from a bit of a distance close but not you know intimate family close i can't imagine the positive impact this is making on children in the future when they have to come across these things as well it's it's so important and we so often dodge it or gloss over it but you can't gloss over it when the children have been visiting this person and they have relationships with this person and i just think that's just so beautiful yeah it it is lovely and it is um one of the most rewarding things that um i do um each week and get to do this with children who who are up for it um and year after year mm. and you're right it um some you know some of these people don't see anybody other than the people that work there from one week to the next and um you know that's very sad really um mm. and when we leave the first conversation we have when we walk out those doors is i ask the children how do you feel how do you feel knowing that you brought those beautiful smiles to these people um and they always say you know it feels good they feel good about it yeah we're built for connection and what what was the incentive for you what was the straw that broke the camel's back for you to start leaving that gate more like you said you had that beautiful space behind you what was it that you went you know what we're ready it's time i think that um professional development helped me along the way you know i was building connections with some amazing people who would were doing amazing work beyond the fence line and um we thought well you know we want community to be at the heart of what we do and it can't be if we're in here you know every day all day and so um i think that that was the the driving force we if we want to be part of community we have to get out there in the community and um you know, we do so much. Like we we set we set off to go to down to the beach, which is right down the end of the road, but we detour to a little cafe um, on the way most times. And there's a beautiful man there on Wednesdays that plays um, his um, piano, and everybody on the at the cafe sitting out on the waterfront sing, and then we turn up and and the children sing and dance as part of that as well. And um, you know that. That's about being in your community, just turning up and, you know, not ringing up and saying, well, we're coming, you know, you know let's make this special. We just turn up and um, go with the flow and um, that's just one, you know, just one little mm. thing um, that, um, yeah, that, that, that makes this special and makes these children, you know, feel that they're part of a community. And, you know, we've got Bob the Pirate, um, that lives in his ship on um, the waterfront <laughs> and he became um, a, an integral part of our community garden and, um, you know, we did, we wrote a book about that too, about um, Bob the Pirate having a green thumb because he helped us for a year, you know, really get that community garden moving and, um, you know, now we see when we see Bob out and about, you know, the children from year to year that have met him just able to say, hey, there's Bob, you know, <laughs> how are you going? And 
yeah, it's it's just lovely. It's so beautiful. What were some of the barriers as a director that you had to overcome there? That you know, what were the the barriers that you faced that you overcame to leave the gate more often? Probably not going to like this answer, but there were no barriers. Good. In the end, there were no yeah, there were no barriers. Um, we realised there were no barriers, um, and we made sure that this was um, part. You know that that we. Um, spoke of this in our philosophy um, we're open to families who come to us um, we do have policies and we do have risk benefits but um, that that's the key word there the benefits so we we don't do risk assessments we always mm. speak to the benefits of of why we're going to do this and Honestly, um, yeah, I've been asked this before. What are the barriers? There are no barriers. We won't allow there to be any barriers. <laughs> I'm just slow clapping here in the background. <laughs> that you, you know, you, you just said you're not going to like this answer. That is actually the most perfect answer I've ever heard because there aren't. There uh-huh. is not. There is no reason people can't leave their gate. None. There is zero, zero reasons that you can't leave the gate, mm-hmm. and it drives me nuts. Because there is an answer and a solution to everything if we just take the time to sit and problem solve it. And that that means generally you can solve it within your team. You don't even need to outsource that because you have a highly resourceful team at all anywhere that you work, any setting I've ever been to, generally they could solve it themselves. And if not, if you go and visit other settings that are doing amazing things, they will help you. And if not, then yes, of course, you can outsource and get other people like ourselves to help. But so often it's just taking the time to sit and go, I feel like this is a barrier and then someone else to say, well, here's a solution. So thank you for your actually perfect answer. <laughs> oh, that's wonderful. <laughs> I um, It's probably not the right word, but I'm going to term it like this because I, I want to ask you how the changes you've made, particularly since 2016, um, what does success, and I guess that's the word, I, people are com- uncomfortable with the word success, but success means a hundred different things. So first of all, what does success look like for you as a setting, as a director, and then as just a human being? And how have, have the changes that you've made helped you hit those your own personal targets of success? Because success doesn't necessarily mean full books and loads of money. What does success look like for you to begin with, I guess? And then how have you gone about meeting those those uh, markers of success for you? Success for me is um, being happy, loving what you do and um, doing what you love, um, but also being able to um, impart that on on the people that you spend um, your time with, especially in your workplace. Um, so it's always been really, really important to me to be um, an effective, a good leader. Um, and I feel that um, I guess um, I, I have the right to feel success in that area um, because we do have a team, um, we have longevity in our team um nobody usually leaves us unless they've um you know we've had one someone who um I nurtured through um from her cert three to her teaching degree and she's off teaching but generally you know our team um, are very happy um 
they love what they do. Um, we have happy children. We mostly have happy parents. Um, I'm not saying that some of the things that we do haven't challenged a parent from time to time. Um, but but I think, um, yeah, success to me is just every, everybody being joy, joyful, the children being joyful, our team being joyful, me being able to be joyful, mm. um, and all of the people that we build relationships with um, are able to be joyful as well. So I guess the deeper question for me there is what brings you joy and what brings your team joy? If you were to break it down, what is it that sets your setting apart from other settings where you do feel like you can be joyful at work amongst community, um, doing your paperwork? What is it that enables that? Um, I think um, having autonomy and being brave um, helps to support that. Um, we, we do, as an affiliate service, we do have autonomy. And so while um, we totally um, love the CNK brand, we still, as an affiliate, are autonomous to um, do the things the way um, we believe is best mm. for our children and our families and each other and the community. So I, I think that's the key for us, um, that autonomy um, and then being brave to let's just get in, let's just get in and let's do this because we've seen the results. Um, we know that it's in, um, what we're doing is working well. And, and I'm, not, I'm not even referring now to the fact that we are the first in Australia to, to receive the fourth um, um, consecutive excellent rating. Um, that rating doesn't define us. Um, it certainly speaks to a lot of what we do, but if we had not been successful and we almost didn't apply, um, if we had not have been successful in that rating, we would still be doing exactly what we're doing today. Mm. That's telling. I think I think that when you are so joyfully doing what you do, it breathes through assessment and rating. When you've got happy children, happy team members, happy directors, parents that, yes, are challenged, but I think that's part of community and belonging is also being able to resolve conflict and have uncomfortable conversations successfully. I think that's a huge part of belonging is being able to have uncomfortable conversations mm -hmm. and still know that you're accepted and belong in that community. So it, the work that you do is so purposeful in making people feel like they belong and feel safe to be themselves, their authentic selves. It's probably hard not to feel joyful like that, I'm guessing. Yeah, true, very true. <laughs> so what do you think success would look like in five to ten years for you? Success. For me in five to ten years, well, I don't know if we can go ten years, but <laughs> let, let's just talk about five years. Um, I'd love to still be doing what I'm doing. Mm. You know, I'm 66 now um, and my body and my brain and uh, my well-being and everything is just going really, really well for me. So I'd like to be doing exactly what we're doing now. Mm. um in another five years 10 years I mean the girls often joke that um no you're never leaving and even if you're in a wheelchair well will you into the office and you can deal with all the problems and we'll look after the children so, you can be the um, volunteer um, yeah 
exactly exactly um so um i hope to be doing exactly what we're doing now you know and to continue to learn along the way and refine if we need to what we're doing we're not perfect um but just um yeah i wouldn't i wouldn't change anything really so beautiful if you could go back in time to when you first started out, I'm thinking of all the early years educators just starting their Cert 3s or diplomas or whatnot, is there any advice you'd give to yourself or them starting out? Um, that's, that's a tricky one because um, the person that I am today mm. is not that person that started back then. Mm. And I often say that, the, the teacher that I was back then needs to pull all of those children back in here and almost apologise for um, the way we did things back then. So I guess my advice um, to, um, you know, people, you know, starting out now in early childhood is to have an open mind um, and, you know, research as much unprofessional development as they can that speaks to their own personal philosophy as well um and um not to be afraid of change i find that change seems to challenge a lot of people whereas um myself and and our team we love change you know we embrace change and um that has helped us to grow Mm-hmm. and to, to be better versions of ourselves, um, not just as educators but as human beings as well. Um, so I guess that that would be, yeah, all, always look at change as an opportunity to, mm-hmm. to um, maybe do things better. I can hear your bravery that comes from a growth mindset and that no not fearing failure and seeing that as, as potential for growth and learning and I think for a lot of people, that's that's the means to success. And if we can impart that, that sense of not fearing failure to children, I think that's one of the biggest things that we can set them up for health and well-being and, and happiness and joy. So again, thank you for role modeling it. <laughs> Pleasure. And you know, it, you mentioned um growth mindset, and that has become a really big um part of what we're focusing on with our children at the moment. Mm. Um, and um, we we are seeing some positive results from that as well. You know, not so much of the language of, you know, oh that's lovely and fantastic, and you know you're really clever and all all that type of of language that sometimes we fall into, and we're being very very mindful of um, using the language of, of growth mindset now, so that children do understand that we don't get it right from the beginning and sometimes we have to try and try and try and try again until we can get it right and we are seeing that 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 is um that's been very beneficial in in this space with our children as well and 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 each other you know yeah yeah and i would add as a parent too it's been one of the best things for my children's mindsets is you know I've particularly got I won't name names but one of them has trouble beating himself up a little bit but flipping the mindset to be it's not a mistake we're just learning you know scientists have hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of prototypes and it's all just 
one big experiment life and we're all just learning and and making mistakes and it's the only way we grow and that has really flipped his mindset in the last like couple of years and I'm so grateful for that because it's changing those neuro pathways and changing the story that he tells himself rather Mm than I'm dumb and I'm a failure and that sucked or I suck it's now ah oh well it's just a mistake and gosh just that semantics in that language makes such a difference how good is that? Oh, so amazing. <laughs> Do you have anything else that you'd like to add or tell us about uh, Bribe Island CK before I get into some rapid-fire questions? Um, I don't think so. My brain is quite full at the moment. <laughs> oh, it's, yeah, amazing. All right, I'll get stuck into some yeah. rapid-fire questions. So, Narelle, what is your favourite book of all time and why or what are you currently reading or even listening to if you prefer podcasts? or a recommendation as an education leader, anything? Okay, that's a tricky one. Mm. Um, I've got, I've got, yeah, I've got lots lots of favourite um, books. Um, Last Child in the Woods has, has always been a favourite of mine. Mm. Um, I read a lot of um, Nikki Buchan's work. Yeah, she's great. Um, and, yeah, she is great and has been a wonderful mentor. Um, for us as well um believe it or not at the moment I'm reading the book on um the voice the yes mm, boat. I just started that um, the other day and yep yep so um I've I've I have almost finished that and um it has helped me so much. I mean, I'm guided by the relationships that I have with First Nations people, not just locally, but um, in many different um, areas. Um, and um, but this, the book has definitely helped me to understand um, more um, mm. and, and understand the facts, you know, rather than um, listening to the hype um, yeah. that's out there. Absolutely. Um, so that's not really well. It is. It is. It does relate to early childhood because absolutely, you know, this country has the opportunity to make a decision for the future old people. Mm. Yeah. Um, you know, um, so it's not just about now. It's generations. You know, first nation generations to come, which um, is driving me at the moment. Um, yeah. So yeah, highly recommend grabbing that book and also exactly like you said, make sure on your social media feeds that you are following particularly First Nations voices in your local area, like in, on your country or your local mobs, but also the, the voices for everyone, you know, First Nations mobs all over Australia. So listening to different voices, young and old, and hearing the concerns. There are concerns, um, but I think that book, like you said, the book is really good at setting out the facts and I think that that's really important. There is a lot of misinformation going around at the moment um, and I, I'm going to be very political here and say the saying that if you don't know, vote no is I'm going to swear here and say is absolute bullshit. We have a bigger responsibility mm-hmm. than that. If you don't know, find out. But you're grown up, only grown ups get votes. Go out and find out the information. It's not a good enough excuse to vote no. That's my piece. No, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, you yeah, know, I'm with you on that. Um, and, um, you know, I'm about to have a bit of a Facebook clean out. <laughs> yes. And not, not, because, 
um, people aren't on the on the same page as me, but that they're being so public um, about it mm-hmm. and are misinformed. Yeah. So yeah. Yeah. The the I I just feel for our First Nations mob having to go through the vitriol and the racism that is being given a a stand at the moment and I, I understand why it needs to be a referendum I understand that that's the only way we can change the constitution I wish it didn't have to be this way I wish it didn't have to go to the white public to vote uh, but that's that's the way it is so please have the hard conversations with mm. your family and friends because this is really really important and um, sweeping it under the rug is not going to make it go away it's it's only going to make it uglier mm. yeah um, one other book that I'm, I'm reading at the moment too is um, by Tony Christie and she talks about um, the title of the book is Leading with Heart and Soul mm. and um, I'm absolutely loving that. And another thing um, that I follow um, Tony with is uh, about rituals because we have a lot of rituals at this kindy and um, it's, it's, yeah, it's another great, great one to follow. I haven't read uh, Leading with Heart and Soul, so I'm going to grab that one because, again, they they do amazing work, those two. It's, um, again, it's just it's child and heart-centred. And I think I I can walk, and you would be the same, having the experience that you have, you can walk into a, a setting and and know the settings that are led with heart um, and the settings that are, are not is where I'll leave that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All right. Where do you go or what do you do to reset after a tough day? Um, I go to my family. Mm. Um, after a tough day, there's no place that I want to be other than with family. Um, I'm blessed to have not had too many tough days. I think I could count the tough days um, um, in my time here probably on, on two hands. Mm. which is pretty good. That's amazing. Um, but, yeah, we, um, like I, I start my day again with that growth mindset of um, today's not going to be tough and, um, you know, um, everything will be okay and, and um, I will get through today and I usually do. Mm. Um, most of my days are joyful and not many people can say that. Um, but, yeah, I think um, my family is my safe space um, at the end of the day, I live off the island only just. I drive over that bridge in the morning and I love it and I am equally happy to drive off in the afternoon mm. and be, be you know, at home with my husband or when, um, you know, my daughter visits. Um, unfortunately, um, my um, my granddaughters and great-grandchildren, um, um, they've all moved up around 1770 area mm. um so i don't get to see them a lot but we communicate a lot and um yeah i'd have to say my family is is, is my retreat definitely mm. that that bridge is a beautiful drive and a beautiful way to to bookend the day too what a nice way to almost mm. farewell uh, with a beautiful likely yep. half a sunset happening too <laughs> um if you could choose just one thing to change about, I usually ask the education system, but I'm going to ask the early years, uh, early childhood, what would it be? Um, if I had the power to do this, I would make children older before they start formal schooling. Mm. Um, I would like to see children um, 
at least another six months older mm. um, um, because, oh, my gosh, you know, it, this is a battle. This actually is a battle. Mm. Um, being able to provide children with that time, that extra time that a lot of them just need just to play and to learn through their play and before they um, go into formal schooling. Um, and that's that's a hard one. Um, yeah. I'm a keen advocate um, for every child, no matter where they are cognitively, every child should have two years of kindy. And um, obviously that's, that can't, can't be, um, but um, that is one thing um, that especially those children that obviously need it, um, we are firm advocates for that. We don't always um, succeed for them, but we do our best. Um, and it's not coming from a perspective of, um, you know, having bums on seats no. and filling our numbers because don't we, need we to. do do yeah. that anyway. <laughs> um, it, comes, yeah, it comes from a genuine, genuine um, concern for these children that um, aren't ready and they are going to be in a state of, I guess, um, some type of anxiety because they will always be trying to catch up. Mm-hmm. And um, so, yeah, I think that's, that's, that's one thing I would change. Let's just make all children at least six months older before they start formal schooling. Here, here. I'm a huge advocate for the delayed start. If you've got any, any concerns emotionally, cognitively, socially, for your child entering school, that's enough of a red flag to delay them. And don't worry about mm-hmm. them meeting their social needs or learning needs. They are learning it at kindy. They are learning it at home with you. They just need time to be children. Let them be children. This is really good timing. You know, it's nearly October. People are going to be thinking about whether they're sending their children to school. Here's your permission from a very, very, very wise educator, Narelle, who's giving you, and I'm here too, advocating for delayed start. I've never, ever, ever met a family or a child that has regretted delaying their child. Not yet. Absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, um, we actually have families coming back to thank us mm. for, for making the recommendation. We um, an, Another book I must mention that um, I um, actually haven't um, got to read it yet because I've lent it to one of our families who's struggling with the decision. So mm. I bought the book and um, have passed it on to her for these holidays to have a read. But um, an amazing guy called Andrew Oberthur. Um, Andrew was principal down Pine Rivers, one of the schools down Pine Rivers. Um, he's he writes a book about you know are you ready for school? And he, mm. as a school principal, he's amazing and very raw and honest um, about you know when children are or aren't ready for school. And for anyone, any parent or even any educators who who need something to back up, you know what yes. they feel is best for the child. Get this book, sit it in your parent library, um, and you can also, um, Andrew, over there, um, there's a link with um, um, Andrea Isset, um, First Door, First Door Early Childhood. 
um, consultant, she does a um, a really good um, interview with um, Andrew about this. So well worth, um, yeah, well worth everyone having a look at that. Fantastic. I'll uh, find that link and I'll put it in the show notes for anyone listening mm-hmm. as well. I think again, those resources are invaluable because a lot of the times parents are speaking to other parents that also don't know. They're in the exact same boat. They're all feeling the same anxiety. And they're not sure who to speak to about it other than people that are in school. And that, and that's often not mm-hmm. the people that are helpful yet. Um, so, yeah, that's thank you for those resources. Really appreciate it. Um, the last thing, where can we find out more about uh, Bribey Island Community Kindy? And if I'm a parent in the area, how do I go about maybe perhaps trying to enrol my child? Um, so we've got our website, bribeykindy.com. Um, .au. We've got our Facebook page and we do share a lot of um, the learning, a lot of the children's stories, a lot of the joy. We, sh- we do share a lot there. Mm. Um, and, you know, just, just a call, just give us a call. Um, we don't, we, we make ourselves available as often as we can. We normally say don't pop in on Wednesdays because we won't be here. <laughs> um Friday mornings is not great because I'm normally you know up visiting the oldies with the children but we're, we're pretty flexible and pretty open and um you know we can be asked anything we will be honest um and yeah and everyone's welcome amazing thank you Narelle so much for joining us and again thank you for being what people sometimes feel they can't see it, it's so wonderful to be able to I follow you guys on Facebook I have for years and uh, it brings me such joy to see you out and about and chatting to oldies and elders and you know seeing the wildlife in the ocean and I think like you said this is what parents want for their children but sometimes uh, early childhood settings that can't work out how to do it because they believe there are barriers so if you have any barriers just ask ask around ask us ask anybody because nothing should stop you from getting out of that gate so please if you need any encouragement let this be your encouragement to deeply embed our first nations perspectives sustainability community it's so beneficial i think the thing i've taken most out of this is not only does it benefit the children and community but in a sector that is losing education team members by the thousands at the moment it's a great way to enable our teams to feel very purposeful and have a beautiful sense of belonging uh, and well-being so thank you thank you for all the work that you do Narelle and thanks for being here today my pleasure what I took from our chat with Narelle today is that embedding anything into your programs and settings takes a lot of time authenticity deep listening, and a huge embracing of failure. I also learned that success to Narelle is happiness, joy, play, and healthy relationships, putting those connections to community first. And I would add, though she didn't verbalize it herself, that the work that they do at Bribey Island is deeply, deeply purposeful and likely makes them all feel a deep sense of connection to their community as well. We've been having a lot of chats here at Wildlings about what success looks like to us as a business and what it looks like to others and ourselves as individuals. We know that here for us at Wildlings, success doesn't mean being multimillionaires, 
though that would be a lovely bonus, I'll have to admit, or raking in awards, though it is really lovely when we have won awards in the past. But for us as a business, success looks like meeting our purpose and our values and mission, which is getting more children outdoors adventuring. It's helping families build connections and their village, and it's about helping raise the next generation of children who will help protect our planet. Individually for me, success again doesn't look like huge amounts of money and fancy cars and nice clothes and all of those things that I guess mainstream media tries to set us up to want and need. Instead, for me, success looks like more time or at least flexibility in my time to be with my children or to work the hours that suit our families and to be able to go away when we want to. Success to me is a healthy body and a healthy mind, which I'll only get through building healthy relationships and connection to my community and my neighbors. And of course, nature. It's having fulfilling work where I can be my authentic self and play and where it's filled with awe and wonder. You know, by shifting my markers of success to what made me actually feel good inside and outside rather than these external markers again, that mainstream media kind of sets for us, that that was the catalyst for me to move towns 10 years ago when our firstborn arrived. And then moving from the suburbs here to acreage, multi-generations on our property, it pushed me to take the risk to take the leap and change careers to move out of mainstream teaching. And it pushed me out of my comfort zone where I checked out a bunch of different playgroups really slowly and intentionally building my village. It's seen me let go of unhealthy relationships and surrounding myself with doers who are secure in who they are, who are builder uppers rather than people that, you know, bring people down. And and it saw me leaving the schooling system, the traditional schooling system and heading down the unschooling path. I guess all this is to say that this is my version of success and there is no wrong or right answer. But I think from the talks that we've been having in and around our community that a lot of people don't know what success actually feels like to them. What success is to you will look very different to anyone else. There is no wrong or right answer. So don't even bother looking at what anybody else is doing because you don't know what they're sacrificing for that success. And that may be your main marker for success. But until you know what success actually looks like to you, then it's really hard to start taking the baby steps toward what that looks like in your life. So some questions you could ask yourself or your setting or the people in your team are, how do you or how do we define success here? Do you think you're a successful person or do you think this setting is successful? If not, what area or areas would we like to change? What would I like to change about my life? Compared to a year ago, what parts do feel more successful? And what changes did I make to get there? Where do you feel you are succeeding in your personal and business life? And what are those indicators? And really feel into them with your body. You know, I I can't recommend turning the TV and ads off enough. I can't recommend putting away tabloid magazines more. When I did that, I really believe turning the TV off and having those bombardments of what I should look like and what I should be attaining and what success should look like really allowed me to listen to my own inner voice about what that would look like. Um, And I think that sometimes takes time. It takes time away. It takes us 
we need to kind of set intentional time to go and do that. So, and that can be really hard, I think, if you've never done it before. We have created a little guide. We get asked this a lot, obviously, because we run our wild business course. How can I make change? You know, how do I know my business is successful? How could I take the leap and leave my job? And so we have designed a little guide to help you start drawing out some of those answers because, again, what success looks like to me is very different. We've got people in our wild business course that want to set up multiple spaces and make this a really successful financial venture. That is perfectly, perfectly great goal to have for other people. Like that's that is a, a is, that's your goal. That's amazing. What you then need to work out is how you're going to work backwards from that goal and break that down into tiny steps. So we have created a free find your purpose activity, and you can download that and complete that and do that in your own time. You can find that on our Raising Wildlings Instagram in the link in bio. And why not give us a sneaky follow while you're at it if you're not already? Or you can find it on our Raising Wildlings website. It's just at the bottom of our homepage. You'll find the link there. It's, I think it'd take you about 10 minutes max. And it's a real find your purpose. Because I think without knowing what your purpose is, you can't actually work out what success means to you. I actually think it's worthwhile doing every year, every couple of years, even if you're happy. Because I think sometimes maintaining the status quo feels safe but that might not necessarily be what's best for us you know, moving forward. And we need to always be moving. Not, no, that's not true. We don't need to be moving forward, but we do need to be checking in on ourselves if there's anything else that we have and that we can do that's within our power to make our lives easier, smoother, calmer, more peaceful. What makes you happy? Because if you don't know that, you can't achieve it and you can't start breaking it down. I'm not entirely sure how I got down that rabbit hole from summarising Narelle's episode today. I do know, I think Narelle and her incredible team at Bribey are happy and they're happy and their team are healthy and they have great well-being because their intentions are deeply rooted in authenticity, purpose and connection. And we humans need connection. So... To summarise all of this, maybe a good question to ask us is, are our connections healthy? Is my relationship with my children, my partner, my team healthy? And if not, what can what kind of steps can I do to help that? Because without healthy connections, life can be really, really hard. I'll end on that note. Thank you, as always, for taking this journey with us. And until next week, stay wild. Mm-hmm.